Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. An unnamed minister in, in the Northern Ireland government is calling for the British Army to be sent into Catholic areas and to just machine gun anybody who's on the streets after a curfew has been called. Military historian Hugh Bennett's new book, On Civil War, The British Army and the Troubles, is a seminal work. The military advice from HQ Northern Ireland and from the MOD in London is that internment isn't actually necessary Based on enormous research in archives across the UK, Ireland and the European continent, it shatters some of the myths around how the Troubles began, why they escalated so quickly and the Army's role in Northern Ireland. The Cabinet Ministers are thinking about Britain's status in the world and leaving Northern Ireland to, and people there to kind of fight it out amongst themselves is seen as just simply too embarrassing. The author, who is reader in international relations at Cardiff University, was consistently obstructed in his research by many of the military authorities, absurdly so in some cases. The Ministry of Defence uh, didn't want this kind of evidence to be discussed in the book at all. Yet the book he has produced is brimming with new insight into the most controversial period in Northern Ireland's history. You know, this period up until around March 1972, when, when the British government really did believe that they could win this conflict with military power, that they could impose a defeat on the IRA first and then only have to worry about any major political reforms afterwards. That was a fundamental mistake. In this episode of The Bell Tell, I'm joined by Hugh Bennett to discuss what the army got right, what they got wrong, and the lessons for future conflicts. 
Before we get to the outbreak of serious violence in Northern Ireland, take me back to those years leading up to the Troubles, so the early, the mid-1960s. What was the sort of mindset of the British Army in that period? What sort of things kept commanders up at night in England? Well, Sam, I think traditionally the British Army had looked on Northern Ireland as a lovely place to go, especially for officers nearing retirement where they could enjoy traditional country pursuits and and quite an easy and relaxed lifestyle. That all started to change around about 1966 when there was some police intelligence suggesting a new IRA campaign was about to be launched. Um, So really from that period onwards, from 66, uh, about the Easter period, senior army officers were looking with more and more concern. And then especially as the civil rights march began to to unfold into the late 60s as well, they began to be aware that Northern Ireland might pose far more challenges than it had in the recent past. And obviously any army trains in all sorts of terrain. They train for all sorts of attacks or invasions. They've got all sorts of contingency plans. Was the British army thinking that an outbreak of of violence in Northern Ireland was possible? And if it did happen, how they would deal with it? Yes. Now, clearly the army's in an interesting position in in the mid to late 60s, because on the one hand, it has a huge amount of internal security or counterinsurgency experience from all over the British Empire. But on the other hand, it's really focused for most of the time, um, and especially at the senior leadership level, on thinking about the Cold War. And the Army's kind of primary task that they're emphasising is being ready for World War Three and um, the, the, mission, the mission in Germany. So there's this kind of divided attention, if you like, um, within the army, I think things really begin to change from about 1968, where the Ministry of Defence at a, at a senior level they start to draw up a number of uh, a number of scenarios, do that kind of typical military thing of scenario planning. And there's there's kind of five different scenarios that they set out, with kind of number one being fairly minor disturbances and protests going on that could be managed by the police with no problem. And then scenario five is really the worst case. And this, I think, has a really profound influence on on military and government thinking for really the next 30 years or so. This idea of the worst case being a civil war that engulfs not only Northern Ireland, but then kind of flows downwards throughout the island of Ireland and comes across the sea and kind of infects almost the British mainland and is you know, causing violence in uh, Manchester and London and Liverpool and all the major cities in, in Britain that have a, an Irish presence. So this kind of this worst case thinking is, is really significant for, for the military outlook. And this this fifth scenario that you're talking about is fascinating because it also involves the the really breakdown of any sort of relationship between Stormont and London, any sort of proper constitutional relationship. And they envisage the idea of Stormont essentially going off and forming some sort of illegal government, um, some of the police going over to support them, um, some civil servants resigning, people in the B-specials expected to overwhelmingly back this illegal government. And yet the British, you say, saw this as a prospect that was too alarming to seriously contemplate. What was it about this that that they couldn't quite embrace? And how significant was that in then how they came to deal with loyalism in particular? 
Yeah, I mean, this is happening within, you know, the, the living memory within, within only a few years of um, something quite similar happening in Rhodesia, right? So the senior echelons of the Ministry of Defence, the Cabinet Office, the Prime Minister and so on, they have this in mind, this kind of thing of, of settler colonialism in, in Rhodesia going terribly wrong and there being a, a rebellion against against British rule. They, they, they see that that could happen in Northern Ireland as well. So there's kind of various different gradations of, of alarmism. Um, there's a number of uh, intelligence assessments of the likelihood of different parts of the Northern Irish state turning against Britain. And I suppose the, the, the most serious concern of all is actually about the police special branch, the IUC special branch, because there's a recognition that the special branch have an expertise and an understanding of the local political situation in Northern Ireland that nobody in London can really match. So quite small numbers of people, you know, the special branches, you know, under 100 officers uh, at this point is pretty small organisation. If, if the special branch turn, then it, that's seen as really one of the worst cases. So there's this constant kind of assessment process going on. Some of these records are open, some of them are still shut. Um, where London is having to consider whether those core elements of the Northern Irish state are going to are going to turn against London, and that really makes the British state very very cautious about how to deal with loyalism, because it's recognised that there are those who work for the state in the police and elsewhere who have varying degrees of sympathy for some of the loyalist groups, and the degree of sympathy is always ambiguous. Many people listening to this, I think, and even myself listening to this, will find it extraordinary that British policy, to any significant extent, could be influenced by a cadre of something like 100 RUC officers. And I'm, I'm not clear as to whether they knew that they had that influence at that point or not, but the idea that, that there was such a weakness here in the British security apparatus that they were dependent on these people, and without them, they, 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 they couldn't really do what they thought they needed to do. Is, is that not an extraordinary failure of security planning, whether that's military, civilian, I'm not entirely clear, MI5, whoever would be brought into that, but the idea that such a small number of people in the RUC would be shaping in any way British policy? Yeah, there certainly was a recognition that this was a, a huge vulnerability for the British state. And there were a number of measures that were taken over time to try and counterbalance against that. So, for example, yes, uh, office, officers were sent over, seconded from MI5, from the Metropolitan Police, from Army Intelligence, to try and build up a more kind of British um, mainland uh, expertise in intelligence gathering that would diminish the relative power of the special branch. So by the mid 70s, for example, like the military intelligence uh, setup is is big. There there are a lot of of military intelligence officers in Northern Ireland, and the special branch is is by that point you know much less powerful. One one kind of indicator of how powerful the special branch is institutionally is that um, what happens with uh, the reaction to interrogation in depth or, or the use of torture um, against the hooded men in uh, in 1971 and into 1972. So the the advice from the from the the legal officers advising the British cabinet was that these techniques had had probably broken the law and that 
criminal prosecutions should be mounted against the special branch officers who had carried out the interrogations. Now, those men were protected from criminal prosecution because there was a, a, a clear understanding that if they were taken to court, then the special branch as a whole was going to go on go on strike and there would be no no more help coming from the special branch, which was completely unacceptable at this point where the political violence was really spiralling out of control. So the, the special branch had a lot of power, but it, it's not all about the special branch. The, the army and the, and the British government were, more widely were also worried about the power of the UVF, of the Ulster Defence Association. You know, there were there were thousands, if not tens of thousands of men, many of whom had experience in the British Army. You know, they were veterans. They had training. They had weapons. They knew how to use them. So that was another big factor in the thinking about the potential threat from loyalism. And lots, lots of people in Northern Ireland, in, in, in very nationalist circles in particular, will look at this and say the British weakness towards loyalism was either born out of very overt bias or it was part of a wider collusive, um, uh, very, very significant collusive relationship between the British state and loyalist paramilitaries. And you don't disagree, obviously, with the fact that there was collusion, proven collusion, clear collusion various points. But you make a very interesting point in the book that essentially the British were scared of loyalists. And again, that to me seems a fairly striking thing because they're fighting the IRA. The IRA are obviously um, very capable at this point um, in various um, in various military regards. But this massive body of people in the UDA are actually frightening the British army. Yeah, I think one of the one of the pitfalls of thinking about collusion is that there can often be an assumption that the type of collusion that that was taking place in the in the 1980s and into the 1990s that this kind of type of relationship was the same all the way through the conflict, you know, over 30 years or longer. And yeah, my argument is that that's that's not necessarily the case. So for sure, that the, there's elements of collusion emerging later on. But early on, the reaction from the army in particular, so it's, this may have been different with the police, but the army's reaction is one of fear. They are very concerned about the, the kind of raw military power of the UDA, of the UVF. And, you know, collusion tends to suggest some kind of affinity or brotherhood or kind of shared sentiment or sympathy and when you read the army accounts you know they're what they what they think what soldiers think about these loyalist groups in the early 70s you you're more likely to come across disgust resentment you know very dismissive emotions rather than any kind of fellow feeling. Can you take me through what the MOD strategic interest was in Northern Ireland in this period? Because you talk about army recruitment, you talk about RAF facilities in a period where the Soviets are still a very significant threat, the main threat to Britain as as, as many commanders saw it. What was the strategic significance of Northern Ireland militarily? So there are a number of papers that are drawn up by the Ministry of Defence centrally uh, in the 1970s about Northern Ireland, because one of the one of the questions that's considered as the violence becomes more out of control in, in 1970, 71 onwards, is um, should Britain just leave Northern Ireland and either uh, try and bring about Irish unification 
or even ask the United Nations to step in and ask for an impartial peacekeeping force from, from other nations to take over from the British Army on the streets. So there's quite a, a number of detailed studies done by the MOD of this question. And there are some advantages pointed out to keeping the presence in Northern Ireland, the naval bases, obviously the dockyards, recruitment into, um, into the Irish regiments of the British Army and so on. But by and large, the view is that either Northern Ireland is is neutral uh, or that it's uh, it's a kind of an, an asset that could be disposed of. So there is no really strong case coming from the Ministry of Defence into central government thinking, arguing that Northern Ireland must be maintained for strategic purposes. There, the, the Soviet threat is is seen as. Um, unlikely to exploit anything that happens in in Northern Ireland. And there's a remarkable line in the book, a very understated line, but it's really remarkable when you think about it, where you say that the Prime Minister, the Home Secretary, the Chancellor, the Foreign Secretary and the Defence Secretary, so all of the key positions in Cabinet, all believed that a united Ireland was the only viable long-term solution for Northern Ireland. But at that point, they believed that walking away from Northern Ireland was far too problematic. So even though they thought that's what had to ultimately be done, there was no way to get to that that particular goal. And so they they essentially tried to find ways to address the situation in the in the in the instant, and um, because they believed that without a British presence, there was going to be civil war. Take me through the the thinking in the cabinet and between cabinet and the military about the the long term future of Northern Ireland here. If they believe that ultimately Northern Ireland is not going to exist forever, how does that impact on their tactical decisions? Yeah, so it, it really is remarkable, and also as well as these views being held by you know very senior office holders in the British cabinet, it's also held across both political parties. So the Labour Party, uh, when they're in government and in opposition, and some of the most senior figures in the Conservative Party when they're in power too, that this is quite a widespread view that there's there's no solution to the conflict in the long term apart from Ireland being unified. But those are kind of individual sentiments and individual beliefs. And it is this fear of a civil war that would result out of any attempt by the British to to withdraw. Um, There's also the factor of uh, prestige and embarrassment. So the cabinet ministers are thinking about Britain's status in the world as a global power, as a country that sits on the UN Security Council and leaving Northern Ireland and people there to kind of fight it out amongst themselves is seen as just simply too embarrassing for 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 a great power to to contemplate so there's as i said a whole range of different uh alternatives are, are considered and it's quite interesting how some of these are, are championed by the military so the head of the british army at one point is arguing that the solution is for ireland and britain to share sovereignty so that people who live in Northern Ireland can choose whether to have a British passport or an Irish passport, or they can have both. So there's, there's some quite imaginative uh, ideas kind of circulating around. But then also on the table from, from quite early on is, is the idea that there's going to have to be power sharing. And, you know, what we end up with in, in 1998 in the, in the Good Friday or Belfast Agreement, you know, the, the, the core ideas of that agreement were circulating around from the, the very early 1970s. So it's, it's really remarkable how it took 
such a long period of time to actually implement something that had been clear for, for, for ages. And of course, the big barrier to power sharing at that point is unionism. Unionism is not prepared to do that. It doesn't see why it should do that. It thinks that this is just another part of the UK. Majority rule is the standard democratic um, view as they see it across the UK. There is there is no need for them to adopt different processes here. And there's there's a fascinating quote that you have in the book where at one point, James Chichester Clark, the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, said that violence in Catholic areas was organised by the IRA and so he advocated making life so unpleasant for the inhabitants of those areas that they would push the IRA out. Now, that obviously didn't happen, quite the opposite. But how significant was Stormont's wishes, um, was what it was wanting the army to do? How significant was that in army thinking at the top level? Stormont was influential in that sense. But I think, you know, there's there has often been an assumption that the British government, especially under Edward Heath as the Conservative Prime Minister, were just doing whatever Stormont told them to do. Whereas in reality, my view is that there was just an agreement. There was a political agreement and the British government uh, accepted the basic premise of what Stormont were telling them, which was that if they pushed Northern Ireland too fast to reform, to bring the SDLP into some kind of power sharing agreement that this would provoke a, a loyalist backlash and a and a insurrection from from that part of the community in, in some sense. So I think what's quite um confusing to the British cabinet ministers and also to the senior army leadership is that they don't really appreciate how their slowly, slowly cautious approach is being received and read by the by Catholic parts of the community. So what what you see behind closed doors and, and what the British ministers think that they're achieving is that they, they believe that they're imposing quite a lot of constraints upon the Stormont ministers. So in addition to the, to the example you gave, there's another example where an unnamed minister in, in the Northern Ireland government is calling for the British army to be sent into Catholic areas and to just machine gun anybody who's on the streets after a curfew has been called. So, you know, they're basically arguing for a policy of mass murder. And the British ministers, you know, shoot this down and and say, no, it's not going to happen. It's completely unacceptable. So from the British minister's point of view, they think they're being very effective in curbing the excessive attitude of Stormont ministers. And while all of that's going on in the background, what the Catholic population in particular see in August 1971 is the introduction of internment in a very one-sided way where lots of Republicans are lifted, lots of the intelligence is very bad, lots of the people who are lifted have no involvement with the IRA, loyalists are not being lifted, Um, this seems grossly unfair, there's massive rioting, a huge upsurge in violence, and there's this very, very significant Joint Security Committee minute that you have dug up from August 1971, where you say that the GOC, the most senior army commander in Northern Ireland, said that while the situation remains serious, the events of last night during which the IRA and associates suffered a fair casualty rate had been to army advantage. Street crowds were substantially reduced and the position was resolving itself into a proper military war against the terrorists. How significant was that moment and that idea that this was moving into war from the army's perspective in this? It's very significant. So I think it's a mistake to think about internment as a a one-off event. 
in August 1971, where before then things are fairly calm and the army is in a peacekeeping mode. And then all of a sudden internment comes in and, and there's chaos and there's warfare on the streets. So my argument is that this kind of wartime mentality had been building up probably since the beginning of the year, especially after the first British soldier, uh, Gunnar Curtis, is killed in February 1971. And this idea of it being a wartime situation isn't something that comes entirely from the military. It's given credence and it's given support by the Prime Minister, Edward Heath, personally, who also uses this language of wartime and defeating the IRA and so on, which encourages people like uh, General Tuzo into believing that, you know, that's what soldiers should be doing on, on the streets. So it's it's quite clear before internment comes in, the military advice from HQ Northern Ireland and from the MOD in London is that internment isn't actually necessary in security terms alone, because the army army had in the weeks beforehand had already intensified their search and arrest operations and they believed that if they were given enough time these new search and arrest operations would be effective and that they could probably proceed without internment and what is the ira the provisional ira's mood and strategy in this period the provisional ira is using classic guerrilla warfare or terrorist uh, techniques you know they are aiming to provoke and they are very successful at being provocative, you know, by um, by uh, kidnapping and, and murdering British soldiers, by having a bombing campaign on uh, on commercial premises, on infrastructure, then bombing civilian targets and, and committing mass atrocities that kill entirely innocent civilians going about their daily lives. They are trying to whip up a fervour uh, from amongst the Protestant community and from amongst the uh, within the British army and the British state and provoke the British state into overreacting. And, you know, this is something that happens in, in all conflicts of this nature. We can see similar things going on in uh, Israel and Gaza at the moment as well. Provocative violence is used to try and in, encourage the state to be so repressive that more and more people will get behind the insurgency. And then the state essentially falls into that trap, as you have suggested, which was set for them with Bloody Sunday, with other incidents. How significant is Bloody Sunday for the army and for the wider situation here strategically? Bloody Sunday is very significant. And what I discovered uh, in writing the book is how much debate there was within the army, with the police as well, and with the British government in the weeks before Bloody Sunday about the need to change the military strategy. So by that point, and undoubtedly uh, by the time internment is introduced, but but arguably before then, the British government's strategy is to militarily defeat the provisional IRA. The official IRA as well, but the prime primary objective is on the, is on the provisionals. They believe that they can defeat the IRA and then go into negotiation and go into major political reforms afterwards. So in the in the run up to Bloody Sunday in the weeks beforehand, there's a, there is a great deal of debate within the British Army, within the senior ranks, within the Ministry of Defence, in the police as well, about whether this strategy of trying to defeat the IRA militarily first and only then having any kind of large scale political uh, negotiation and compromise, whether this idea is working and whether it's likely to succeed 
uh, or not. And, and there are serious doubts being being raised about it. So I think it's important to recognise that Bloody Sunday was not inevitable and that there were senior voices arguing for a change uh, in strategy beforehand. Now, I think a lot of people would, would like to believe, perhaps especially British people would like to believe, that Bloody Sunday changes everything immediately. Of course, this is a horrific massacre, which is devastating for, for many people's lives, devastating for whole communities. So we would like to believe that the British government reacts immediately and changes course straight away. What I argue in the book is that it takes 11 weeks for the British government to change course and that they don't change course only because of what happened on that day in, in Derry, London Derry. They changed course because of parliamentary politics in London. They changed course because the UK is trying to join what would later become the European Union. They changed course because there are new signals coming separately from the provisional IRA and from the official IRA about their willingness to compromise and about their willingness to use violence on the mainland. Uh, in London and elsewhere. So Bloody Sunday is certainly a, a hugely significant event in the history of the conflict. But there are other factors that are going on at the same time that cause the British government to change course. And there are two sentences in the book where you talk about the road to Bloody Sunday. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an eloquent and a pretty shocking couple of sentences. You say the road to Bloody Sunday had several waypoints where ministers and senior generals paused to consider whether to keep on going. They chose to do so in the knowledge that unarmed people were being shot. Lots of people will be appalled by that. Is that common in a situation where the British believe this is now uh, moving into a war of sorts? Is that the sort of calculation about collateral damage that happens in any war? Or is that particularly unusual here um, in terms of the material that you've dug up? I think what's helpful in thinking about this is when we're trying to understand those those deci- decision points, and there were there were a number of um, weekly meetings and fortnightly meetings where, where ministers and senior military officers were sitting around to discuss this question of should there be a change of course, is what kind of evidence and what kind of data was available to those decision makers at the time and we now in the archives we can we can find that information we know what the information was so one of the arguments that i make is that they were overwhelmed with with data they had too many different ways of measuring whether the strategy that was in place of trying to defeat the ira whether this was working or not so they had a count of how many members of the ira they thought had been killed uh, a number which was often wrong Uh, How many people had been arrested? How many explosions were there taking place every day? How many gun battles uh, and so on? So I think there was just so much data available that the decision makers were kind of overwhelmed by this. And they were also not being faced with any unambiguously dramatic, clear sense of defeat. So there was no kind of Tet Offensive. There was no major operation by the IRA that proved conclusively that what the British Army were doing at that present time was unsuccessful and unlikely to succeed. So in that sense, yes, there had been many shootings. Uh, there had been innocent people who'd been killed up until that point, but they were treated as very isolated incidents 
rather than being looked at collectively. And after Bloody Sunday, there's obviously this huge influx of new recruits to the IRA. It's a massive, um, it's a massive driver of of their recruitment. It's a massive motivator for their fighters, etc. But what you say in the book is that it's very clear from the documentation and from the record of what was happening prior to Bloody Sunday that that the that the IRA had already decided to wage war. That that this was not because of um, simply army repressive measures. It wasn't because of atrocities like Bloody Sunday. They had already decided this. How significant was Bloody Sunday then in shaping the IRA in the years that came after that event? Yeah, there's absolutely no doubt about it. And I mean, all you have to do is read the memoirs of the senior members uh, of the IRA to to discover this. You know, they they admitted this themselves, is that the IRA was on the offensive in 1970 and 1971 before there was any major uh, campaign of repression by the British Army. So this was already happening. What was also clear from the intelligence uh, that was coming in to the senior British military leadership in uh, in the weeks before Bloody Sunday, in late 1971, early 1972, was that the provisional IRA leadership recognised that if they maintained their campaign primarily in Belfast and, and in Derry, in, in the cities, in other words, that they were going to find it difficult to sustain that campaign because of the rate of arrests that were being mounted by the British Army, for example. So they decided in early 1972, the provisional leadership decided that they were going to shift the campaign increasingly into the countryside, that they were going to increasingly uh, make this a cross-border campaign with active service units operating from uh, the Republic of Ireland into into the north, and that they were going to conduct an assassination campaign or a murder campaign against those crucial officers in the special branch and uh, other other RUC personnel. So there had been a change in the provisional uh, campaign already before Bloody Sunday. And this was known by the British military leadership. This was known by the British cabinet, but it simply failed to change the thinking about the direction of British of the British campaign until after Bloody Sunday had happened. Let me ask you about something that's not really directly addressed in the book, but which which it which it I think throws up based based on some of your work through the archives here. You had enormous difficulties getting the army to cooperate with you, and we'll maybe come on to that in a moment. But what is the situation here for a historian, for society as a whole for that matter, where the army has all of these um, boxes with papers in them, they have row upon row of files. We might not get to see them right now, we might never get to see some of them, but they are there. And the other side in this conflict, the IRA, the loyalist paramilitaries, either never had that or have destroyed it or will never give it to us. Where, where, is, the, um, where is the difficulty there in understanding this conflict fully, where there's this archival imbalance in what's available? Yeah, there, is a, there, there are limits on what we can understand. And of course, there are, in, in many cases, good reasons why some of those archive papers are not available. So there are papers, of course, which uh, name informers, for example, uh, and, and give their, their addresses and, and full details. So, you know, if some of this information was opened up to the public, then people might be killed as a result. The closer we get to the to the present day, you know, some of the files from the 1980s, the, the late 1990s, they contain technical information, a lot of technical information on bomb disposal, on um, surveillance, on intelligence gathering methods. So there are good reasons for keeping those closed as well. 
But there's also within the British government, perhaps especially within the Ministry of Defence, there is a kind of instinctive knee-jerk reaction against opening records on the Northern Ireland conflict. There's an assumption that anybody who wants to see this stuff is somehow up to no good. They're doing it for nefarious purposes and that uh, there's a presumption in favour of keeping, keeping things closed. Having said that, you know, my book is based on over 800 um, files from the National Archives in, in London uh, and many other archives and museums as well. So it is quite remarkable what you can piece together. And of course, you know, you can't assume that everything that is in these papers is correct and, and just truthful and or, or neutral. Of course, it's not. But there's there's a huge amount of information in those British files about the IRA, about the loyalist groups, about party politics even, about many different aspects of the conflict that are not to do with the British state uh, itself. So you can you can gain an understanding of non-British aspects of the conflict by looking at the British archives. And most people, most reasonable people will appreciate that if you're an informer, whatever we think about the system of informers, if there are going to be informers, they need to be protected. Lives are at stake there if they're not protected. Similarly with with any sort of any any really significant army techniques that might benefit terrorists or whatever it might be. But take me through the reality of what you find when you went to regimental museums, when you went to some of these archival places, what was the general sense that you got from the army around things that are clearly not in that category, things that are very old documents, historical documents that are not sensitive today in that way, but might be politically sensitive or might be sensitive for the history of their particular regiment? Yeah, I think it's important to point out that there are really mixed views within the British Army. And when I, before I started writing the book, I did a number of uh, off-the-record uh, meetings and conversations with with veterans who had served in Northern Ireland, and you know some people are really hesitant about this, and they they think the past is the past, and it should be left well alone, and these things shouldn't be you know dug over. But there are also many veterans who would like to know a lot more about what was going on, about the background to what happened to them when they were on a six month tour in Northern Ireland. You know what was the political decision making that was informing their presence there in, in, in those months. So th- there is really a mixed view on this in, in the veteran community and, and in the serving British Army as well, I think. There are parts of the British Army that recognise there's a really important history here and that, that mustn't be forgotten by the, the British Army. But yes, there are also those who are uh, much more cagey about anybody, especially an outsider, someone like me, who's not ever been in the British Army, digging over their past, which, you know, they consider to be a very sensitive issue. So there were some military museums, some regimental museums that were tremendously welcoming, that were very cooperative, that let me look at everything, that showed me the store cupboards, you know, so I could check that they weren't hiding anything. One of the most cooperative museums was uh, Airborne Assault, the Museum of the Parachute Regiments, which uh, perhaps you wouldn't expect to be the most forthcoming, but they they were very, very helpful. And then there were other museums who never replied to emails or explicitly said, we're not going to help you with this because it's too upsetting and it's too controversial. And then there were there were others in the middle somewhere between those two extremes who would be helpful, but were clearly holding certain things back. 
and monitoring what they were willing to release. And what, one of the really remarkable elements of that is that in the book, you, you refer to some documents that were given to you by mistake, I think, if I'm correct, essentially by somebody in one of these in one of these museums or one of these archives. And some of it was very interesting. You planned to use it in the book. And when you asked for permission, I think around copyright or something like that, you were refused that. And actually, some of that, you say, was, was very favourable for the army. So they were actually so defensive, so hypersensitive here that they... They were undermining their own reputation through excessive caution. Yeah, the example. This was really bizarre because the museum had been superb. They'd been so helpful. They had a very well organised collection. You know, really meticulous. You could see the care that had been taken in preserving their regiment's history and, and the memory of people who'd served in Northern Ireland. They had episodes that they were less comfortable with, but they were also proud that they believed their men had done a public good in trying to protect the population of Northern Ireland from terrorism. So they were they were quite willing to let me and, and other people look at their collections. So there were two, there, there were more than a dozen um, sources from their archive that I had to delete from the book because the Ministry of Defence decided that actually those sources belong to them and that the museum should never have let me see them in the first place. Give two examples. One of one of the examples was of this particular regiment meeting with community groups in Belfast in, I think it was in 1970 and 71. They were having meetings with both Catholic groups and Protestant groups, trying to diffuse tensions to understand what people's concerns were, to talk down uh, standoffs and prevent riots from happening. So kind of evidence of, of this regiment being very effective and also really concerned for people's well-being and, and, and welfare. The other example was where this regiment had actually shot somebody dead uh, in a riot situation. And the, the public understanding of this particular incident that's in the public domain at the moment is that the army uh, only gave one warning before opening fire. And the new archive evidence I found showed that they, in fact, gave three warnings before opening fire. So in that case, you know, the use of lethal force, it, this portrayed the army in a much more positive light. And yet the Ministry of Defence uh, didn't want this kind of evidence to be discussed in the book at all. Just just finally, one of the elements that, that struck me as completely new, I've never seen this anywhere before, is some of the archival evidence that you've pulled up where there was essentially a class element to how the British Army viewed the IRA. And it wasn't that they viewed the IRA as working class and that they were in any way superior to them, but they viewed them as a mirror image, if you like, of themselves. So they thought that the British Army had an officer class. It had a very impressive officer class, well-educated officer class. And if they lost their officer class, they would be in deep trouble. The men would know what to do. And so they thought that if they took out the leadership of the IRA through arrests, through internment, whatever, that would have the same impact on the IRA. And it basically didn't. What is the what is the significance of that in terms of the options that were available to them in that period? Because obviously they're very limited. If they're not going to shoot these people, all that they can do, if you like, is to lift them and arrest them and put them before the courts or intern them. That's absolutely fair. You know, there were limited options available to the army. But what is remarkable is the the lack of, if you like, self-awareness or, or critical assessment of the likelihood of this arrest approach ever succeeding. So what you see in the army um, in the monthly assessments, the operational uh, summaries of what the army is doing in Northern Ireland, in the intelligence reports, is that there's this kind of just ongoing optimism that if these arrests continue, then eventually the, the provisional IRA essentially will collapse. 
because there won't be any leadership and the IRA won't be able to function without without its leaders. So there's these kind of endless citations of battalion intelligence officer X has been arrested or the explosives officer in the Ardoin has been arrested and so on. And this belief that it will it will prove effective eventually uh, but it doesn't keep it doesn't prove effective because the, the provisional IRA is able to just keep on regenerating itself. So yeah, I do think that there's a, a, an element of if you like mirror imaging of the British army looking at itself and thinking, well, our soldiers are kind of non-ideological they're not really motivated by ideas or political beliefs they just do what they're told because the officers are there and then assuming that this must also be the case with the provisional ira of course it it isn't the case and even quite low level commanders within the ira are able to carry out you know ruthlessly effective operations on their own without that much higher direction just finally there's obviously a massive conflict now between Israel, between Hamas and Israel in Gaza in particular. There are massive parts of that which are very different to Northern Ireland, the scale of it most obviously, but there are elements of it that are not entirely dissimilar. What do you see as the lessons of these early years of the Troubles for that conflict and also more widely because this sort of street-to-street fighting, this sort of um, very um, difficult embedded um, terrorist or paramilitary units within in a civilian population is now much more common um, than than it was to the British Army at that point. What should the British Army and should other armies be taking um, from what you have discovered in the archives and elsewhere from these early years of the Troubles? So I think there's there's three points that I'd make on that. And uh, as you say, of course, every every conflict is unique and there's kind of danger in trying to transfer lessons from, from one context to another. But I think that the first thing is, is the importance of political reform. So, you know, this period um, up until um, around March 1972, when, when the British government really did believe that they could win this conflict with military power, that they could impose a defeat on the IRA first and then only have to worry about any major political reforms afterwards. That was a fundamental mistake. That was a huge mistake. There were there were senior officers in the army at the time who were saying that this was going to be a mistake, but it was the policy of the British government. So I think the use of military force needs to have a, a political um, a political plan going alongside it at the same time. It, it mustn't be a kind of one thing and then the other. The second point is that, you know, the British were only really able to start to begin to get on top of the IRA in 1972 and 73 and 74 with the help of the Irish government and with the help of of other European allies as well in intelligence gathering and, you know, arresting some of the IRA leaders who are living in in Dublin and elsewhere. So internationalising in in one way or another, I think, is, is essential. And then the third point is that something that was devastating to the British Army's ability to build relations with the population in Northern Ireland was this sense of denial and protection of reputation above all else. Now, the clearest example of this, of course, is the response to Bloody Sunday, where there's a a whitewash, there's a cover-up. The Widgery Tribunal, the main purpose of the Widgery Tribunal, is to exonerate the British military leadership and to pass the buck somewhere else. 
So this is, you know, not only a huge harm that is done to people who've already suffered from the from the day of uh, of Bloody Sunday itself. You know, it's not only compounding the harm to them. It's also very self destructive for the British army and for the British state in its relations with the population. So I think for for any other army, there needs to be an acceptance that soldiers who are trying to deal with violence coming up from within a community, they are going to make mistakes. They are going to kill innocent people. They are going to commit atrocities. And it's necessary to admit that and to to hold your hands up and to apologise and to try to atone for these things that are done rather than to revert to a kind of reactive denial, which just compounds the harm. Hugh Bennett, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.